everyone, welcome to the Browsers Tech and Beyond podcast. We have a new name. Same people, new name. How are you guys doing? I guess, yeah, new year, new name. Same people. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Happy New Year to everyone. I think I think we said Happy New Year last time. Might as well. I think last that. time we actually recorded it before the New Year's. But it oh, interesting. Out. It would actually be coming. It's not out yet, is it? It'll be coming out in the middle of January. Yeah. End of January. Right. Yeah, which is now. Interesting. Yeah, I think we stagger them by every two weeks. If you're hearing this, it'll probably be like way after New Year, probably like end of January. And you're thinking to yourself, why are they telling us Happy New Year? But it is what it is. It's 2023. We're going to talk about browsers, tech and beyond. Should be going. Should be going. Ever. <laughs> all right. All right. Stefan, man, start us out, man. Let's talk about some browsers first. Okay. So this one's to me, really fascinating. I think that there is this trend happening um, recently and for the past few years, but I think it's been accelerating a lot more and that's browsers are gaining functionality rapidly. We're seeing a lot of applications that you would once think were only possible on native desktop applications, let's say Photoshop, let's say games. But now we're seeing more and more, and we've been seeing this for a long time, kind of functionality come into web apps. And what I want to talk about is this idea of web technology becoming more and more powerful, enabling this. There's a reason why Photoshop was a desktop app before. It's because the web just wasn't ready for it. And now we're starting to see more and more that the web is becoming stronger and stronger. There is this project called Project Fugu, I believe that's how you pronounce it. And it's actually this multi-company initiative to elevate the browser. So Safari, Chrome, all these other browsers, basically it's to elevate the browser's capabilities to equal the mobile apps, to equal desktop native apps. And they have examples where like Excaladraw went from a native app and migrated over to a web app. They have examples of things like Photoshop going into the web. Adobe announced that they're planning on actually migrating over their existing technology and moving over to the web. And it makes sense, right? In the previous episode, we talked about how difficult it is for people to download things and so on. So having it just right there in the web is so much better. And then we have things like Alpine Linux in the browser. That's it's honestly, to me, that's really incredible that like you can literally run Linux on a website and it's all running within your browser. It's not like it's loading it onto some sort of VM somewhere and then live streaming it. No, it's like literally on your browser. And then finally, there is the origin private file system where it's a file system that can run within your browser and it's like super fast. People have built SQLite on top of it using Wasm and there's all this amazing innovation. But at the same time, I want to, as as I'm setting up this kind of conversation, I also want to draw to a different point, which is, It's amazing that we're having all this innovation, but there are examples in which companies that sort of monopolize the browser ecosystem, like Google, for example, I think it's about 70% of the market share of browsers. They run something called Widevine, which is a sort of a DRM solution. And there is this browser. What's a DRM solution? 
So digital rights management. If you're wanting to watch something on Netflix, you'll likely have this DRM solution in the back end that makes it very difficult for you to extract the actual video from Netflix. And even though- Like the client side, you're talking about the client side application of Netflix, you mean? So on your browser, like the browser has this thing called Widevine and that actually facilitates, like if you don't have that, Netflix won't run. Okay, so it's a client side thing. Yeah, Whether exactly. It's on, in the browser or in native applications. Okay, yeah, it's, but it's in the browser. That's what you mean. Okay, instead so, of something like running on a server. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So this this guy Samuel Maddock, he was building this browser called MetaStream, which makes it easy for you to watch videos with friends and stuff like that, right? Remotely, it's kind of similar to our conversation previously with multiplayer. And he reached out to Google saying, "Hey, I want Widevine into my browser so that." People using my browser can watch Netflix, can do all these things, right? And they literally responded saying, I'm sorry, but we're not supporting an open source solution like this. So there, there is this kind of dichotomy to me between the open web and all this innovation going on and also this sort of tricky balance where obviously the leaders of the browser ecosystem don't want incumbents to take over so they introduce some sort of measures like this and i'm curious to hear what you guys think about all of this okay is this the widevine is it something in the chromium project is it open source is the code is a solution derived by all of the online streaming platforms to ensure okay. that streaming content has to verify with the signature with the drm signature okay in brave brave has brave you can enable widevine on brave but they i think they they make it as an extension Okay. Yeah, so Brave had huge issues getting this supported as well. But because obviously they're much, much larger than this browser that we're talking about right now, they were able to figure something out. But yeah, Metastream, the guy had to shut down his project. He couldn't build a browser anymore and he turned it into a Chrome extension. Yeah, it's a shame. I just don't understand how Google is not letting him use it. That's the part I don't really understand. In which part of the browser technology stack does this fit in so that he's not able to use it. And is it proprietary code? Yeah, it's it's proprietary code. And the big thing is figuring out how to get it to work with Chromium because the open source Chromium build and also Electron and what have you, they don't have any support for Widewine. So you basically need to like reverse engineer how that works. And then I think there, there's also like some sort of signatures at play where mm. Google has the private key that signed these things. And if you don't have that, then you don't, I guess, even if you reverse engineer stuff, you won't be able to get the like real version of Widevine. And then these applications likely won't be able to support your version of Widevine because it's not signed. What does Safari use then? Do they also use Widevine or other browsers like Firefox and Brave? Do they have some kind of special partnership with Chrome that like, why are they allowed to use Widevine or they use something else maybe? Because you are able to watch Netflix in Safari. So why so, so what happened is Widevine is free for people who produce content, right? So you're producing content, you can use Widevine to encrypt your content. It's basically kind of an encryption okay. module so that the Widevine engine on the Widevine engine on the machine can decode it, decode the content so you can see it. That's the whole spiel with the uh, with the whole thing. And then it's like decrypt. I guess it's decrypted on the client side. This is what's the purpose of this to begin with? Is to prevent third party streaming 
like those legal streaming and stuff like that. That's the purpose of this, right? It's if you took some sort of screen recording software, I don't know if that's still a thing, but back in 2016, I tried this and you try to like record Netflix, it would just be a black screen. So I think so Chrome, Firefox, Brave, they use Widevine and then at least from some preliminary research I, I did, um, Edge and Safari, they kind of have more deeper um, integrations with the operating system itself. Okay. So Safari nice. had some sort of DRM nice. solution that nice. Mac has. Um, okay, so well, let me I ask you a question. Back to you were bringing up how web browsers are like just getting more powerful every year, honestly. And what do you think is the one big thing or feature that are is able to take is able to provide a platform in which traditionally native applications like Photoshop, all the Adobe applications, what do you think is providing that sort of is going to let these applications move to the web, be fully running on the web? For me, it's the one thing that JavaScript does not have that that native applications have is multi-threading capabilities. But I think with the release of web workers, this is essentially, which is is not brand new. It's actually been out for a couple or a few years now. Web workers, they allow you to spawn a new thread in your browser, but in the browser context, it's called a worker. And this is essentially multi-thread programming now in the web browser. Now, I'm not sure how multi-threading works in WASM land, but I know for JavaScript, this is how you would achieve that. And then in these worker threads, you can run heavier that are more CPU intensive and so that you don't want to block off the main UI thread that's displaying the UI of your web application. So I think this technology will, and this feature will help bring those native apps into, into the browser, like Adobe Photoshop, but I'm not that experienced with WebAssembly. I think you guys are more than me. Could you tell us more about, cause I'm sure that is one of the, also a big feature that is giving power to, to the, to web browsers. So could you guys tell us a little bit more of how they could bring those kind of apps over? Yeah, yeah so WebAssembly uh, actually still require web worker. Yeah, so the way that you spawn a WebAssembly process, you still spawn it through a web worker process, right? Okay, okay, so, so they work run... together, actually. They, yeah, work, so they together. work together in, in tandem. WebAssembly... But you, but you can run JavaScript on a web worker. Precisely, yeah, you can run JavaScript. Yeah, okay. But then with WebAssembly, you can now run almost any kind of other language as long as it can con comply down to WebAssembly, right? The targeted WebAssembly. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you can actually have a common ABI for WebAssembly. So it becomes very flexible. You can take a whole Rust program, compile down to WebAssembly, and run it in JavaScript. That's the power of this tandem, that you can actually moving native app easily to uh, like, to the web by compiling like some of these more, yeah, sure, the front end, some of the front end stuff, just use JavaScript and HTML, who cares? But the more intensive, like, intensive stuff, like image filter or GPU intensive, right? Or mm -hmm. like stuff like that require like cryptography module, right? You can transpile, transpiling the Rust or the C++ module they use for those, for those capability and compile them to WebAssembly and run it on the web with web with right by a web worker that spawned the WebAssembly binary. Now I think that this technology, so WebAssembly been around for about I think five years and web worker been around for 10 years now. So stuff been around for a while. I think the key missing piece is what Stefan had in the doc web. It's actually the the, the file system. 
So JavaScript mm. require, right? That's why a lot of solutions are still requiring a separate database, right? You need a database to store. What are you storing? Well, the file, basically. You will need to store your file. You need to store data. That's huge. Even though you, your machine might have one terabyte of hard drive, right? The thing is web app previously cannot really stream directly to your file system. It has to save, you have to, you have to open up a dialogue and then it would say, it would make the file. You can save a file as big as your RAM basically, right? So you cannot actually save a file as huge as one terabyte. You can only save a file as big as within, that, that can contain within your memory of your current memory that's running your browser. And sometimes it's probably half your RAM or something like that. But mm. with the advent of the origin private file system, OPFS, right? So with OPFS, and especially with integration, right? With integration with database too. But OPFS by itself is already very OP. Very OP. Mm. OP right. right. So you're talking integration like UL Lite. That was Stefan Brown. Yeah. So that is a separate pieces that people are starting to take a look at. Taking a look at. And also other like database layer too. Like not just SQLite. There are people trying out, what is it? PostgreSQL, right? The full blow database on top of this. But I think that just the file system itself is very powerful such that you can now store a file and stream them directly into your file system. Assuming the user giving all the permission and whatnot. And sure, you have the file and we can stream to it. So now the user can, for example, you're working on, for example, a Photoshop project, right? Or a music project, a music project with a bunch of layer file or with a bunch of like music layer, right? So previously you can only have the, you can have, you, you have to store all of them in memory. But now, a lot of these assets can be just stat can be stored statically, and yeah, now like, the program can have a lot. Now we have more we have more memory, more RAM in the web browser to do fun stuff. Yeah, it doesn't have to right. hold all the it doesn't have to right. hold everything in memory anymore. What was the closest thing that developers had to use before Origin Private File System? Was it IndexedDB? And what are the major differences between IndexedDB and Origin Private File System? I think one is a database, right? IndexedDB is still a database. So you have to, you, you're not working with file, basically. You're not working with stream of blob, even though you can. But I think that, yeah. I think, I think the, AP the words that I think you're trying to say, Louis, is they operate in two different layers or levels of abstraction, right? One is a file system. And then the other one is a database that should yeah. technically exist on top of a file system. There are two different oh, layers. Okay. I see. But that. even so then, the I think I've... even then previously with I'm with IndexedDB, right? You have to take the blob out, I think, to operate with it. With yes, you, your file you system, yeah. you actually just you can just let you can actually let the thing sit there in in the file system. And so your program, yeah. But I, I, does IndexedDB thing is, yeah, IndexedDB stores data on the hard disk. It doesn't store it in RAM, correct? It does, but the question is how easy to extract that data? How easy to extract the data, right? For example, mm -hmm. like in a game, right? When you save game, you're actually expecting it to save to some folder that is familiar to you so you can actually break it up, right? You can break up the file, right? Same yeah. with your... Same with when you have a music editor or, uh, for example, like with Excali Draw, right? The awesome thing about that is you can make the, yeah, you can make the, uh, you can make the drawing, you can save it into the file system and you can back it up easily. 
with mm-hmm. index DB, there the developer have to do another abstraction on top of that to let's take the blob out of the index, index DB and offer them to downloading as a file. And then it's mm-hmm. finally right into the file system. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. with OPFS, it right directly to the file system. You don't even have to, you don't even notice that, you know, you have a file. Yeah. The other thing that I just want to clear up is this is not a thing in the RAM. This is a thing that like the, this file system store, like the, all the files and all the data are stored yeah. on disk. Basically mm-hmm. on hard disk. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. The ju- just to also talk a little bit about the name. The reason why it's called Origin Private File System is because mm-hmm. browsers created like when browsers implement this. What it means is that one single origin, so like Plasma.com or whatever, Wikipedia.com, uh, they have their own file system, so they can play around and like it's their little playground. They can do whatever they want, but other origins are not allowed into their playground. This means it's cross tab, right? Yeah, exactly. So it will work like if you have 10 tabs open all with the same origin, it's going to use the same file system. Yeah. So if you got the same protocol, let's say HTTPS, and then you got the same domain name, and then that is what qualifies as the same origin. But if you had like HTTP, YouTube.com versus HTTPS, YouTube.com, those are two different origins. Yeah. So if you have the same origin, which web applications do, then you got, yeah, just a file system living under you that you can access from any tab, from any web page, as long as it's in that, as long as your frame, your web page is, yeah. has that origin. And Bye. yeah, I think this and, uh, and Asm and web workers all together. I think these are the really big things that are pushing the web plat- platform and making it closer to native as much as possible. Definitely. Yeah. Lewis, you were saying. I think there's another layer that we didn't mention is actually mm-hmm. the browser become more and more there's another force is that the, the supported codec the supported file format that's getting into the web is becoming more and more powerful too is where the web browser now supporting much more larger kind of a you don't even need to download a separate video player your browser can play almost video file video codec so right. i think that's another piece of it too yeah, all these APIs that are browser specific, for example, the accelerometer, right? We don't really think about the accelerometer much when we're talking about browsers, but on mobile, accelerometer is a big thing. That API, I believe, did not exist on browsers. And be- with this project Fugu that I mentioned, it was actually added and they're working on a lot of other APIs as well. So yeah, like I think it's a mix of performance, which we just talked about. Like you can, I feel like, the thing is with the file system, you can replicate it using index DB, but you'll have to understand like good design practices. You will get worse performance and it just won't be as good as this origin file system. The other thing is what Louis, would you talk to not just video, but also accelerometer also like anything mobile has mobile apps have the browser, the browser should have anything desktop apps have a file system that should be included into the browser. So I think it's a mix of perf and also like actually like real features. And Mo, in your work, as you build extension capabilities out in Sigma OS, I'm sure you find that a lot of times, like you, ha- you have to implement a lot of these features, right? And get a two feature parity. And I think like browsers like Chrome and stuff are trying to do that, but with getting feature parity with desktop apps or mobile apps. Yeah. And... That is the goal ultimately. And I think that's holding web browsers back 
and that hasn't let them uh, that hasn't allowed them to get there yet and it's taking all these years right is because the web platform and the browser are supposed to work on any platform it's a cross platform device right so if I have Google Chrome I can run it on my Mac I can run it on my Windows on my Linux machine on my iOS device on my Android device etc right so this is what's taking so long, but getting to this feature parity is just going to make a uh, feature parity is with the native uh, desktop apps and the API capabilities that have. It's just amazing because you're going to have this feature parity and the developer does not have to think about what native desktop platform is he running on. And that's what I love about the web. And that's the one thing that's that holds it back in terms of performance is right. The developers of these browser engines when they build a new feature, they have to make sure, in most cases, that feature works on most devices, right? So again, like Macs, Windows, getting to that stage that's going to be able to run like native apps, it's going to take some more time, but we're certainly getting there. And I think it's possible 100%. Cool. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a good time to wrap it up. I think that was a really good conversation discussion about that stuff, but you know, Enough talk about the browsers. So let's get to the good stuff, which is what everyone's been hyping up for the last, let's say, two or three months. And definitely 2023, I, in my opinion, is probably going to be the year of AI. So would love to hear, Mo, your thoughts on the synthetic generated web. Right. So this is where we still are going to talk about browsers and the web and stuff. Come on, Steph, Stefan, don't. No, we, that's us, man. That's. <laughs> but First, we're going to browse we're the going to talk AI about world. The... Exactly. We're going to talk about the, sort of the intersection of how in AI can intersect with the web and web browsers. What I wanted to bring up is a project I found. Oh, actually, I did not found, find this. Lewis found this, and we were supposed to talk about this last podcast, but we didn't. And I'm stealing his topic. Thank you, Lewis. Is a project called Latent Browser. And essentially what it is, it's a web browser that you give it a prompt and it generates a web page for you, right? So instead of a browser, instead of you going to youtube.com and then the browser fetching the, the files from YouTube servers and serving it to you and rendering the web page, there's none of that stuff. It's just you give a text of what you want. I want a website that's able to play videos and I can subscribe to channels and it's red and YouTube is right in front of you. Okay, it's not that good yet, but there are some pretty cool examples of prompt and prompt engineered websites. And this is, if I'm not mistaken, off the backbones of GPT, right, Lewis? Yep. All right. So the prompt is fed into GPT and whatever the however the training model the model was trained, it it uh, spits out HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. And gives you a web page right there, rendered in a client side in your browser. Now, the one thing I want to, I thought about and draw drew from this, I thought, is this sort of the future of client side applications? Are is this gonna do what everyone's been talking about and what everyone's scared about is take web developers' jobs or just client side engineer, client side developers, client side application developers' jobs in general? And honestly, my honest answer could be a little scary, but I think if it gets good enough, 
and on the pace that's heading to now, I think this will, the web pages generated by this GBT model or whatever model in the future will be just as good as web pages that are built by web developers. And another cool thing about it is that each user can have their own sort of customability, customizability, whatever the word is. So if you want an app that's specific to you and your workflow or something you do in your business or in your day-to-day -day job that's not out there that someone hasn't built already, you can just go to this model, to this browser and type in some text of what you want. And it's there in minutes or in seconds. So I think that's really cool. But I want to ask you guys, do you guys think that this will get good enough one day to the point where it'll take over web developers jobs? So I think this, in my opinion, this technology really is more about empowering like imagination, right? So it helped with the initialization of imagination, I think. It will not steal their job because un unless the model is optimized for design, unless the model is truly optimized for that, perhaps. Let me give you a, let me give you, let me give you a scenario, Louis. I think your answer assumes that browsers will continue to be how they are, not to bring it back to browsers, but the core idea in my mind is if this gets really good, then websites will no longer exist because GPT will just create them. So it's not about, I'm going to use this to get inspiration for my website landing page by asking GPT to create like a little boilerplate for me. It's literally, if it gets so good that I can just ask GPT to create me an interface as a user for Zencaster. This is the podcast software we use, by the way. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Stuff like I, that. I, so I had this idea of, so there was a game called AI, AI Dungeon, right? Back in 20, 2020, that I play a little bit and also contribute to when it was still open source. And the idea behind the game is you are thrown into this scenario dungeon and you can explore this kind of endless world that is generated by GPT-3. And that's the idea, right? Is that whatever you want, you appear based on the imagination of this AI, right? And it will be the same for software is that whatever you want, the the, the AI will, will actually make the entire software for you to use. So you don't really care too much about because at the end of the day, you go use a web to find information to find data to find software to solve a problem and then to solve a problem and then you are done right and then you go back to your real life so i understand that i think this could be really at least in its current state i think it could be really good for prototyping and just playing at the imagination like you said louis so the way i see this going is the internet is going to be a bunch of api endpoints of data that's the only thing that ai doesn't have real-time data so what did your friend post today? What Like on Instagram, go, oh, I'm eating my avocado toast. The model has no clue what that is. So it needs to get that information. So some sort of source of data, I imagine it's going to be API endpoints of like JSON data. And then how it's going to work is you're going to have these models that are going to be like insanely good and they will create you know how when you go on youtube or tiktok there's a recommendation algorithm it's going to get to a point where ui will be catered towards you so 
you and I, and it's a pun. So basically the like GPT, I don't know, seven or whatever, it's actually going to create the UI based on what it thinks you will like the most. And then it's going to use these sources of data to pull like the feeds, get the videos, whatever, what have you. And then the actual like front end layer will be personalized for every single person in the world using this AI. So you think this is how it'll impact those kind of applications, like the social medias, the marketplace apps, things that need like a live feed of real world data. That's how you think this sort of whatever GPT-7 will affect that sort of sub tech industry and those kind of apps. Yeah. And even stuff like Wikipedia. So people learn differently, right? Some people are more visual learners while others are more like they, they want to hear stuff and so on. So I could imagine as a place where even that can be disrupted. Like Wikipedia is useful for information, but it's not personalized to people. And I, I think that's another avenue where this AI will understand you as a person, what you what you like, what you don't like, and then it will present information specifically for you. And this information can be stuff like your Facebook feed, Twitter, it could be even Wikipedia, YouTube videos, and so on. Like, this is a little bit, obviously, we're nowhere near this, but that's how I envision the end game for software like this. So my opinion on this is really, there are two, right? There are, by the way, there, there are two segments here, okay? Two, two use Segment. cases. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think we talk about one is, right, something that this AI imagined for you based on your preference with, sure, real world data but it's still the AI rendering of your perspective, of your supposed perspective of the world, right? It's, very, it's still very exploratory of yourself. It's actually a reflection of yourself, I would say. It's a good way for you to see the world from your lens. What if I allow people to also explore that with me as well? So you open up this AI and you say, hey, someone come to my internet garden with my design. And so, each, so instead of each person, each person a website, now each person has their own personal internet for other person to explore, right? Because previously you have your personal website, which express your style, express your whatever, right? And you have that little garden, little home, little place in the internet for you, in the internet for yourself. But I would say that if you merge that vision to the thought that Stefan just have, you would have, each person would have their personal internet, right? <laughs> And you can share that if you want. And people can experience the internet from your point of view. Mm. Mm. That's okay. super interesting. And so, I think that ties in with the multiplayer stuff we were talking about last time too. Yeah. So browsing the web in the future, if such browsing the web in the far future might be browsing the internet from another person's perspective, not just the website. Oh, visit, basically, to visiting someone's personality, you can now visiting their the AI, the AI model. You visit the AI model, their personal tuning of the internet from their point of view mm -hmm. and to see what kind of lens do they see the world in, you can learn a little bit more about them. Yeah. That's what super, would, that's super fascinating. Which will be interesting. It, it's the same, it's the idea with game design, right? Which is the same, right? Where you create a character or even Fortnite, you make a character and you add some skin to it. And now it has some, you try to portray your personality, right? Through the skin of the character, through the way you play the game, through even how you, you know, 
are you like a are you like a free to play person or what kind of what kind of player are you, right? But yeah, you can imagine in the future if you can experience the entire internet that this person is experiencing, perhaps you will have a much better idea of who this person really is. But then the repercussion, I think that the actual private life of this person might be in jeopardy. I think that's why a lot of people use game, right? They don't you don't put your social security number on a game. You well, only put is, maybe. I th- yeah. I think the web is just the place for this because of the web security, right? And all the security that goes on in, uh, on the web platform, right? So I think that's where it can come to play. Regarding your point about you can learn a lot about somebody by seeing what kind of lens of the world they look at via this sort of system that we're discussing could potentially exist in the future. I think people already self-select how they see things based on, let's say, who they follow on Twitter, what kind of learning do they do? Do they use Wikipedia primarily or do they watch YouTube videos? And I think this already exists, like with these data brokers that have all this data. It's just that it's not in one place, right? So all the concerns that you're having about privacy and stuff are definitely warranted because we're already seeing that right now. The repercussion of having public data is not that it's not that it's not too bad, especially when the private data of that person, which is sure they can have my public data, who I like and whatnot. But the actual preference that I would like to tell this AI to say, hey, block this person. I like this kind of vibe or I like this kind of thing. I can imagine the AI, you can actually extrapolate from the AI into the entire person itself, right? Sure, right now, the ad, right? The recommendation engine has able was able to infer like the preference of the person, right? But I imagine if it become more personal to the person, it can even extrapolate their preference for password or like their entire history, right? And not just the and not just like the commercial part of it. Yeah, I think for any kind of software application, really you can have the sort of customized, personalized UI layer. Especially, like you mentioned, you made a great point. Everybody learns differently. And if there's a model that can adapt to your way of learning and present different applications, that is different sources to you in your personalized way, that can be really helpful. What part of the technology stack of someone's personal computer do we think that GPT would generate the code for? Because at the end of the day, it's a GPT model, right? It's a text-based model, but on the other side of it, code has to come out that has to be run by a computer that can be displayed on a monitor or screen, right? So right now with latent browser, it's a web page, right? It's GPT, you give it a prompt, the GPT model spits out HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. But what if it could do that for other sort of graphic, anything that can generate a UI, such as a native desktop app UI frameworks like SwiftUI, or when you are, or something even more low level, like low level operating system graphic libraries, like Grow Core Graphics, Skia, OpenGL, stuff like that. Or is it even going to be more low level than that? It's not even going to generate code. The GP model, GPT model could just generate pixels. But then I guess that's not really GPT. That would be something else like Staple Diffusion or something. But we could put that in the same question. It doesn't matter at the end of the day which model is running it. So what do you guys think? Is it going to be in in the web platform? Is it going to be in native desktop apps? Or is it just going to be you give it text and it'll just give you pixels? 
and that renders on your screen. Because at the end of the day, that is what they are. It, no matter so, what technology stack you start on. Yeah. I think like looking at the trends, right? We just talked about browsers and how the web platform is becoming very strong, very powerful. I think that things will be moving more and more to the web. So I think it's not just desktop native and stuff like that that you need to consider, but also applications. As applications get more and more advanced, they will likely not use they will likely be on the web, but won't use things like, I don't know, like normal, like HTML tags and stuff like that. Figma is basically one big C++ project that's compiled with Wasm. And uses Canvas to render its UI. Yeah, so we need to consider those as well. Unity Engine runs on the web, but that doesn't use traditional HTML and CSS and stuff like that. So right. I don't know, for me, I think all this tech will run on the browser. The question is, does it mean that every app needs to make its own little like API for this thing to actually build an extension on top of its UI or how it will work? But it, for me, it's definitely going to be on the web. A friend of mine was actually building out um, a Figma plugin where you can give it a prompt. Um, I think he stopped working on this, but... Basically, you give it a prompt, hey, generate a landing page for me with this stuff and this stuff. So similar to the latent page stuff that we were just talking about. And it would actually control Figma and create those components within Figma. So it's like what you were talking about with your question, right? What are the different places where this might exist? So we see it a little bit with HTML, with this stuff, and then with Figma, with my friend's project. I believe that he was or someone else that I remember was moving to Webflow. So building, building, you give it a prompt and it will generate a Webflow like project that is related to that prompt. I think there's a lot of room there. Yeah, excited to see, but it seems like it's app specific. What do you mean app specific? So you know how, for example, some of your extensions that you built just work across the board because they rely on fundamental things about the browser, like downloads and stuff like that. Whereas other, so that's what latent page is, right? It's just Later pure browser. HTML, CSS, JavaScript. But then that kind of stuff won't work if you're trying to render, if you're trying to have Webflow and create a landing page on Webflow, it won't work with HTML, CSS, JavaScript. Like it has to right. understand how to work with Webflow and same with Figma yeah. and so on. So that's yeah. so there, there could be different models for different applications. There could be a model like the one is right now, latent browser that generates HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. There could be one that generates Webflow apps. There's There could be one for designing that, that lives on top of Figma. So then Figma turns into a kind of like a programming language, essentially, as long as the chat GPT model knows how to control it, right? Essentially, it's just like a programming language that the GPT model is using. And like the other thing I'm curious about is as this becomes more and more prevalent, will it become a requirement for you to create some sort of, um, I don't know, data format or some sort of way for GPT to interface with you? Otherwise, you'll be seen as this software that can't be, that can't have AI integrate into it and I'll actually use a competitor because you suck, that kind of idea. Imagine the next version of SEO is to be uh indexes by GPT. Basically right now, you have to be indexed by Google to get to the top of the SEO so that way people will look up. 
when people search for stuff on Google, you'll be on top, right? But then like, imagine the future of SEO is actually to have content that is easily trainable or easily indexable by GPT, right? What's the likelihood that this is already happening? Huh, what is the likelihood of that happening? Like it already, it's already in GPT-3 right now. It's already in Google. It probably already is some of the thing within Google, right? No, what I mean is, what is the likelihood that someone thought about this already, maybe five years ago, six years ago, Mm -hmm. and then explicitly added things on the public web that it knew would exist in an AI models training set to bias it to like help that person out. With their yeah, business, that would be very whatever. skewing. Yeah, that would skew the entire search engine. Yeah. Okay. If somebody did that, then they deserve it because they're an absolute genius for predicting where we are today. Well, but <laughs> it's also it's a it would be like a but then that would be that would make GPT a fake, right? A kind of it's not a it's not a very generic result anymore. The result right. is now like somewhat Scoot. curated. Yeah. Yeah. In yeah. a sense, and that, in a sense. Yeah, that, and that is but what I, you were I, talking I mean, about, essentially. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly about, what you were talking about, about. And I think the keyword used, the right word is easily trainable, not easily indexable, because indexing and indexing web pages and stuff like that is not doesn't really exist in the, in, in the scope or context of large language models. But easily trainable, if you have content out there and you want it to show up, on the other side of someone's chat GPT UI, you want to make your content easily trainable. Yeah. That's very interesting. Interesting. Like could open a whole door to a new type of engineering. Yeah. If you think about it, they've been pretty public. We train on all of Twitter. We train on all of Reddit. Hey, I can create, let's say a hundred thousand Reddit accounts in the span of years, and I can keep presenting some sort of viewpoint and then replying saying, oh, I agree with that and stuff like that. And this already happened with the Cambridge Analytica stuff. Instead of training GPT, it was training humans to believe something. So I imagine that the same principles can be applied to AI. Yeah. All right. Well, that was it. Thanks so much for tuning in and we'll see you guys in two weeks. Take care.